You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. 
And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Well, everyone, let's, um, let's pray as we come to that word that the good hand of God would be on us now because we're coming to God's word, uh, which we trust and believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is going to apply to our hearts to meet us where we're at and to fix our eyes on him. So would you pray for me? Pray for me, pray for us. Let's do it. Uh, Father, we come this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that, that it is to gather together as your people under your authority, your good and loving care. And so we pray now that as together we open these words of, of your scripture, that the Holy Spirit who caused them to be recorded for our benefit would move in each of our hearts now and comfort us and show us Jesus. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Well, uh, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for those of you who are at home right now. But I want to start with an image which will probably mean very little to most of you. Does anyone know who that is? Malcolm Fraser. Shame on you, Brisbaneites. Um, former Prime Minister of Australia, who famously said, most famously remembered for saying the words, life wasn't meant to be easy. I don't know how he gets the credit for that because it seems almost common sense to me, but it's true, isn't it? Uh, at least you don't look convinced. For me, it is true. Life is not always easy. In fact, sometimes it seems like there's a conveyor belt. You know, it's, it's moving along and in, on that conveyor belt are always problems of some kind. Tiny little problems, middle-sized problems, and enormous problems that when they reach me, feel like they're going to topple off the conveyor belt and crush me. Life wasn't meant to be easy. Problems are a reality for all of us. And as we come together to God's Word, I, I want to start by saying that if you are not a Christian this morning, how you face problems will be very different, must be very different from how you face problems if you are a Christian. Because if you are not a Christian, then you live in a universe that's blind and, and random. Or maybe you have other beliefs of some kind. But you, you, when the problems come, you're on your own. But if you're a Christian here this morning, one of the reasons that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is good news is that it affects the reality of our life every day and the reality of your life and my life is that we encounter problems. So we're going to look at problems this morning because that's what the book of Nehemiah begins with. But for, before we do, let's get some context so we know where we are at. This is Nehemiah chapter 1. We've been in Ezra for the last weeks. 
they're the same book. Um, it's like, who's a Lord of the Rings fan? Hey, some of you, that's good. How can you not be? But uh, Lord of the Rings, if you know it, lots of other books, it's got book one, book two, book three. Each of the th- same, it's all the same story, but it's, div- it's almost, almost like more than a chapter division. Ezra, Nehemiah, same book, being viewed through as that through history. So now um, the book shifts and where are we? Well, when Nehemiah chapter one opens, it's 165 years now since the cataclysmically impacting event occurred, which was the exile of God's people, Israel, from their land of Israel to Babylon. There's a, there's a map you can see that they were taken away from their land after King Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroyed the city, took a whole bunch of people, tens of thousands of people, 2,600 kilometers all the way to what was in the Babylonian empire. That's 165 years ago from where we started Nehemiah chapter one. It's 95 years since the exile began to come back. There was the, remember, way back in Ezra chapter one, there was the Persian King Cyrus. He goes, well, guess what? You can come home. And people started coming back. That is 95 years ago since Ezra chapter one, when Zerubbabel takes the first wave back of God's people back to God's land. It's 13 years ago, right? Since last week. So if you're here last week and you're reaching the end of Nehemiah, sorry, Ezra, you've got Ezra returning, remember, to Jerusalem. Um, he's rebuilding, he's bringing the exiles back. That's the second wave. That is now 13 years ago. When Nehemiah opens, if you're interested, it's 446 before Jesus, before Christ, BC. And the book of Nehemiah opens in verse 1 with a problem. It opens with Nehemiah. And a problem he faces. Now, Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's in Susa, which you can see there. It's one of the administrative capitals of the Persian Empire. Who was Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah, we're told later on in, verse, in chapter 1, is a cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer is not a, a position that we voted on in the last federal election in parliament and politics. If you're the cupbearer to the Persian king, it sounds like if you're a uni student, this is my job. Because it involves drinking wine professionally being paid to drink wine. That that's, was the job, right? Um, except there was a twist. Uh, you were the canary in the mine. You know that illustration? You know, in the old mines, they used to have the canary and cheap, 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 he's happy. And then suddenly he's dead. That means the air's poisoned. And the cupbearer to the Persian king job was to drink the king's wine before the king did because quite frequently someone poisoned it. So the cupbearer would do his job, drink the wine. Everyone would look. Okay, nothing happening. All right. Pass it to the king. So I don't know how that would go with OH&S in the Persian Empire or work safety. I think it would have some problems. But that was his job. He is not a priest. He's not Ezra, the guy we've been looking at and the book by his name over the last couple of weeks. Um, He was a professional priest. He was a scribe. He was the pastor kind of guy. You know, Nehemiah, he's in the workforce. None of those things. He's he's working in the the government. Now, the the problem Nehemiah faces in verse 1 is big. Hananiah, his brother, comes back from Jerusalem. He's, he's made the epic trip there. Would take up to four months to get there. So eight months, essentially. Not like, you, you know, you get, get the email, how's things going? A bit more complicated. Um, so he's come back. Nehemiah goes, how is it in Jerusalem? And Hananiah gives him the news. Verse three, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, you and me would go like, well, it's a city, it's got some problems, it's, you know, 
what's the problem. But this is God's people. God's people who've come back to his land. All that God had promised to do through his people. The promise, it's all wrecked. And the destruction that, that uh, Hananiah and Nehemiah are encountering in chapter 1, we actually know about that destruction because we've encountered it in Ezra. So back in Ezra chapter 4, which I know it seems a long time ago, I preached on that passage, it seems a long time ago that I preached on it. But um, in Ezra chapter 4, it's, it's a summary of all the opposition that God's people had faced. And one of the parts of that, you might remember it, is that there was a slanderous letter written to the king. King Artaxerxes. The enemies of God's people wrote this horrible slanderous letter. The king, Artaxerxes, goes, this is terrible. They're rebelling. Stop the rebuilding. Job, job over. And then you might remember the military by force. The, the army shows up. They force uh, the God's people to stop rebuilding the walls. And then it seems pretty clear they didn't just stop the work. They demolished a lot of what had been done over those years. And so Hananiah gives the news to Nehemiah. It's a mess. This is very, very bad. The whole of God's thing, his whole work is, is in trouble. It's, it's the remnant of God's people, are in day, they're, they're on the extinction list, right? It's bad. Now, what's the first thing that you and I would do when we encounter a potential problem like Nehemiah's just done? Answer could be a lot of different ones, couldn't it? But I'll tell you what you and I should do is ask a very fundamental question. Is the problem that I'm now presented with my problem? Is this my problem, right? And the reason that we've got to do this is because not every problem is your problem. Not every problem is my problem. Let, let me give an example. Um, my wife uh, works... Um, she's also solicited by training. Um, she works on a number of boards now in a voluntary capacity, uh, Christian not-for-profit organisations. And she works on their board and her job in, the, on the, in those boards is dealing with the conveyor belt of problems that arrive in each of those organisations every day. That's her job. She deals with those problems. Now, you and I would go, it'd be unreasonable to think that she should also be responsible for all of the conveyor belts of all the other Christian non-profits in Australia who also have their own problems. You go like... No, they're not her problems. Her problems are here. This, I'm on, she's on the board. These are, are her problems. And in some sense, you and I, we live in the world. Like we're part of God's created world, right? If we're Christians, we should have a heart for the whole world. So there, in one sense, there is no problem in the world which shouldn't move us. But not every problem in the world is our problem in that same particular way. Not every problem has your name on it. So, so we need to ask and say, you know, when we, we encounter a problem like this, is it my problem? And that's not being indifferent or callous or lazy or uncompassionate, any of those things. What it just recognises is, is that there's no way that you and I can carry every problem in our worlds. You know why? Because we're not God. You and I are finite. And the danger is if we take on every problem that we encounter in the same way, then we end up being problems ourselves for somebody else because we collapse. It's just a humble recognition that we're not God. God's God, we can't take on every single problem. So we ask the question, when we encounter something like Nehemiah does, is this my problem? Sometimes the answer is no. But we have to be careful that we don't avoid the fact that sometimes the answer needs to be yes. Sometimes the problems that you and I face on that conveyor belt have got our names written on them. Your name is written on some problems that you encounter in your life. And to seek to avoid those problems or stick your head in the sand is actually a very serious thing 
in the eyes of God. So, for example, if you are a husband who is married to your wife and your wife tells you, honey, we have a problem, she means you have a problem, we, the real we, we have a problem, but you have a problem and you have a problem, right? And it can work the other way in, in a marriage. Um, if you've got children and you get the call, I, I got one of these last week, and they're always unpleasant. Call, please speak to the teacher about something that's gone on at school. That's my problem. It's my kid. It's my problem, right? Um, if you've got uh, a sin issue in your life, you, you've got an addiction, there's something that, that's, that's going on beneath the surface, that's your problem. That's your problem. It's got your name on it. Um, if, if you have elderly parents who need care, that's got your name on it. It's your problem. So uh, let me give you an example. Paul says, uh, the Apostle Paul, writing in, in the first letter to Timothy chapter 5, he says this, listen to this about the dangers of avoiding problems. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, listen to this, he has denied the faith, and it's worse than an unbeliever. The Bible says, if a problem's got your name on it, and you don't acknowledge that problem and accept responsibility for that problem, you're worse than number. In the number. He's saying is, you're denying the Christian faith. So not every problem is your problem. Some problems have your name on it. How do you know the difference? How did Nehemiah know when he encounters this problem that this is his problem? Well, let's look. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, that's the report of his brother, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. So Hananiah hasn't even finished explaining what the situation is and Nehemiah breaks down. And he weeps and he mourns. His heart is, is broken. Something in his spirit just is twigged and he's like, this is moving me. And, and let me tell you, uh, as you ask that question, and this is not the question where the problem has obviously got your name on it, but you live in the world like I do and you encounter some injustice or some need or maybe in the church there's something that, that needs to be done. You, if you feel the emotion of it, it can be an indication that that's a problem that God wants you to take on. You feel it. Nehemiah feels it. He can't be responsible for every problem, but he feels this problem deeply. Take, for example, uh, William uh, Wilberforce. You, you all heard about this guy. You know, he instrumental in Christian guy, instrumental in the abolition of the slave trade. He wasn't always passionate about slavery. I don't know if you know that. Went through many years of his life as a British aristocrat and politician. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't sound too good, but until he read an account from the ship's journal of a slave ship, of the doctor's journal of a, on a slave ship, and it was a record of what this doctor encountered on this slave ship, he read it and like, this is horrific. This discovered it was all true, and he, he, he describes that he was broken down. He wept. Something in his heart, the Holy Spirit touched his heart and said, that is your problem, Wilberforce. So I don't know uh, the problem that you might see, and particularly thinking in the world in which we live, Christians, where to be salt and light in the world, there might be a problem that is a problem that God wants you to take on. How do you know? Well, emotionally, it's one sign you'll be connected to it, probably. Now, so for Nehemiah, he goes, is it my problem? Answer, yes. So he immediately springs into action to remedy the problem, doesn't he? No, nice, nothing, good, no nods. I got some nods in the first verse. Because he doesn't. He doesn't immediately spring into problem, into action to remedy the problem. What does Nehemiah do when he acknowledges the problem that he is? It's so important. Look at verse four. 
And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah recognizes the conveyor belt has brought me a very big problem. It's an overwhelming problem. He's, he's, he feels it emotionally. It, it devastates him. He, it beware, he bears where's the weight of this problem. What does he do? He fasts and he prays. Now, it's interesting to me in the chronology, uh, the Hebrew months are used in Nehemiah chapter 1. So you won't work this out if you don't know the Hebrew months. I don't know the Hebrew months. But if you look at the footnotes of your Bible, it tells you that, you know how long he did this for? A week? Two weeks? It's a long time, isn't it? Fortnight? Boy, four weeks? That's, that's your annual leave. Well, I mean, how long? Four months. For four months, Nehemiah fasts and he prays. Now, he, he clearly doesn't fast and pray all the time. He's still got his job. He's got, to, he's got to do his job as the cupbearer to the king. But Nehemiah enters a season where he goes, I'm encountering a problem that is too big for me and I'm going to focus on God before I do anything. Ne- Nehemiah, and you go, well, that's a waste of time. Four months, the, the city's getting worse. Four months, he does nothing. Four months, he could be acting. Oh, no. Nehemiah is, is acting. He's acting in the spiritual realm, though. He's coming to God and he's saying, God, reorient my mind and my heart in accordance with the problem as it is. Because he's really saying to God, actually, it's your problem before it's my problem. And if you look at his prayer as he does that, it's astounding. And I'm not going to go through it point by point. We heard it read, but in in verses 1 to 5, you read that prayer and you go, this is a guy that knows he's God. Yeah, he's in business. He's not in full-time ministry. He's in working for the bureaucracy but he knows he's God. He knows the word of his God. Do you notice that? He speaks to God about God, saying, these are your promises. He owns his part of the problem. He goes like, it's part of, I've got to confess, I've been part of this problem. He comes to God and his attitude of prayer is for these four months is communicating with God, is laying it before him. And let me tell you something. And if you've been a Christian for a while, I hope you get this. When the conveyor belt of your life brings a problem that's, that's big, actually when it brings a small one too, you and I, our, our instinctive response is often, isn't it? Let's sort it out. Come up with a plan. What are you going to do? Talk to someone, go and see a counsellor, get some financial help, whatever your problem will be. But we see Nehemiah goes, yeah, do, yeah, do that later. First, let's orient ourselves on God. Let's bring the problem to Him. It's so important in our Christian lives. It's, it's essential. Um, there's a, the old hymn, many of you will, will know it. It says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Very often as a Christian, it's easy to go, I know I should pray because I'm a Christian. You know, I know that, that God's there to help me with these problems. And so if you're like me, you, you'll go at, before bed, you go, like, Lord, I give these problems at your hand at 10 o'clock p.m. And at 3 o'clock a.m., you just take them all back. Waking, they're like, I've got to worry about these problems if I don't worry about it. And, and you know that I've got to be careful how I say this because I don't want, particularly if you're someone who suffers anxiety, I don't want to make it worse. But I think it's true from Scripture that if we refuse to pray to God, to bring the problems to Him, then we're actually asking to increase our anxiety. Because you know what you're saying? If you don't bring a problem to God as a Christian, you're saying either two things. You're saying, I don't think that you care about my problem. 
or you're saying, the problem's too big for you. Actually, it's probably three things, or I don't need your help. And all these things are just recipes for increased anxiety. It's like, okay, I, I said before I like lawn bowls, right? So this, you've got to take this illustration with a, with a grain of salt. Let, let's think about the gym and bench press, right? So let's say that I decide I'm going to bench press 150 kilograms, and you know that's silly just looking at me. Let's, make, let's say it's now about 25. That's a more realistic example. And I'm bench pressing that, and I'm by myself, and you know, any of you have done the weights, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm cracking through the reps, and suddenly I start to get like this happens to me all the time, and, and, and I'm by myself. It's like, uh, uh, and th- then it gets a bit scary if you've ever done this because the bar's heavy and the weight's heavy, and it's like, blah, 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 and then it comes, it presses down on you, and you're like, well, it's going to crush my chest. Help! You know? But prayer is, is actually saying, I'm not in this alone, I've got a spotter. God is my spotter. The spotter is the person that stands you know, above you and they go, come on, mate, come on, come on. You know, yeah, you can do this. Gonna, and, you, and then prayer like says, help. <laughs> and then, all right, spotter grabs the bar and it'd be nice if you prayed and they just took the bar off you. It's like, whoa, that's great. Normally what a spotter will do if you're doing weights is will help you could do it, but they just, they carry the load. And so you're not alone. You've got someone else helping you. And prayer when you and I have problems in our lives, prayer says, I need help. It's a humble recognition that, that I haven't got my life under control, that my Facebook profile is not really who I am. All the good things on my Facebook, how wonderful I am. I don't, I don't do that. It's not me, but I'm thinking for you, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's not who I am. I, I have problems that I can't control. It's like being in, a, in an exam or being not an exam. Actually, it's a bad analogy, but you're in a class, right? And for you, me, you're doing maths. It's like, I don't understand this. <laughs> when I'm at school, I go, oh, maths. You know, prayer is kind of like saying, help. Stick your hand up. Help me. I, 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 wanna, I need your help. And prayer for Nehemiah is not something that's a last resort. He goes there first. I don't know about um, the problems that, that you know, we think about personalized, but the problems that we face as church communities. Now, what, what's our first response? So in Geelong, we've got some considerable problems at the moment, right? We're, we just lost our youth minister, so we're trying to replace him. Um, we've got, a, like a, I think, a deficit in our weekly giving now of, I think it's $20,000, and we're just getting the news that the church plant that we're involved in, in a, a really difficult socioeconomic area called Whittington, uh, has asbestos in the roof, it's leaking, the whole thing's going to be replaced, it's going to cost over hundred grand. So what do I do with those problems as a church? What, what do you do? I mean, I know there are some challenges, problems here. You know, which, uh, Stephen was talking about it just before. You know, Dave Myers, who's done so much in, in bringing the church to where it is now, is not here anymore. That's a big hole to fill. So what, what, what's going to happen now? I mean, how do I respond to that as a church? Instinctively, this is how I respond. Plans, strategy, let's get a team meeting. Okay, everyone in. What do you think we should do? What, what are we going to do? Let's come up with a plan. Uh, let's do a really good giving campaign thing so we can meet the budgets. And Let's get Christian jobs trying to find this. Year. And those things are, are not bad things, right? They're good things. But Nehemiah's example says that for the believer in God, when the problem comes, it starts with prayer. Bringing it to God. Do you do that? Um, do I do it? Secondly, Nehemiah just doesn't pray. We'd probably be happy if he left it there. He also, what? He prays and fasts. Thank you. I was going to leave that really awkward and go like, 
Come on, Brisbane, you can do better than that. You know he fasts. And it's significant if you've been here for the last two weeks, you'll know that this is now the third week in a row where fasting is specifically mentioned as a response to problems by God's people. So two weeks ago in Ezra, uh, you might remember, I'm not sure if you covered this part of the, of the reading here, but there was this incident where Ezra is about to go into the desert with a whole lot of gold and, and no armor guard. And there's this, he stops at the river Ahava and he calls a fast. He says, we're in trouble. We need help. Then last week in Ezra, remember Ezra fasted. Why? Because God's people had become corrupted in their worship. It's a disaster. There's all this terrible intermarriage going on. The, the, whole, the leaders are, are caught up in it. It's a mess. Ezra fasts. Now, third week in a row, Nehemiah confronts a problem and he fasts. Now, I don't know about you, but fasting was not something that was a feature of my Christian walk for many years. I don't think in my first 10 years as a Christian, I ever heard a sermon on fasting. Um, I don't think in my time at Bible college, I ever had a lecture on fasting. In fact, between 1861 and 1954, which was not when I went to Bible college, by the way, but just an illustration... Not a single book in the English language was written about fasting. Which is extraordinary because three weeks in a row we encounter fasting. And if you read your whole Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, you'll frequently find God's people, when they encounter problems, fast. It's not the only reason they fast, encountering problems, but it's frequently there. So you look through and they say, well, did Jesus fast? Yes, absolutely. Did the disciples fast? Yes, Did the early church fast? Absolutely. In fact, we know they fasted two days a week. And we think, oh, why couldn't have stuck with prayer? (laughs) Why why fasting? What is fasting? In case anyone doesn't know, it's not eating food primarily to instead focus on God. Uh, Fasting, it's depriving yourself of something that's good, like food, because you say, I want something more important than these good things. I want God. That's what fasting does. And, and fasting, I don't know if you know this, but it's a tool in your toolkit as a Christian that you need to know that you have, especially when you confront problems. It's, it's a biblical way of responding. Prayer, yes. Fasting, though, it, 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 it's almost like a... I was going to use a shooting analogy. That's going to not be good. Like, I have to use it now because... All right, so... I got a 22 rifle at home. I, I come from a farm and I like rabbit shooting. A 22 is about that big and it's like it's got a um, you know, small projectile. It's, it's pretty not very powerful. But you've got a 22 Magnum and a Magnum is the same size projectile, but it's got a lot more power. The, 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 the bullet's bigger. Fasting is like the Magnum, right? You know, it's, it's, the, it's the extra power. In, in the scripture, it talks about that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the earth looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. Fasting kind of says like, I need your help. I'm sticking my hand up in prayer, but now I'm fasting and I'm really saying help. I like, you know, I'm writing help on the beach as God's eyes go across help. Fasting, it's not saying I'm going to do this so that you're going to love me and forgive me, God. And you're going to be happy with me because I'm fasting. Uh Uh-uh. That's why some of us, I think, have not done fasting because we've seen the twisting of it. it. becomes a way I'm twisting God's arm. No, no, no. Fasting is just saying, God, I need you. And I need you so much that I'm going to miss my food that you've created, which I really like, because I need you more. Man won't live by bread alone, 
of every word that comes from the mouth of God, Jesus said. Listen to what Christosom says about fasting. John Christosom was one of the greatest preachers of the 5th century. He had a whole series of sermons on fasting. This is an excerpt from one. Listen to it. Fasting is, as much as it lies in us, an imitation of the angels, a condemning of things present, a school of prayer, a nourishment of the soul, a bridle of the mouth. It mollifies rage. It appeases anger. It calms the tempests of nature. It excites reason. It clears the mind. It disturbs the flesh. It chases away night pollutions. It frees from headache. By fasting, a man gets composed behavior, free utterance of his tongue, right apprehensions of his mind. Um, I think Christosom might be overplaying things a little bit, at least in the headache department. When I fast, I get a headache, particularly if it includes a coffee fast. Um, But I think he's got the substance. Prayer, fasting, when we encounter problems, and what's a problem that you might be encountering today? And I'd say, have you prayed about it? He's like, yeah, I prayed about it. Have you fasted about it? And you go, I don't know how to fast. Go out there. There's tons of good information on how to fast in a really Christ-centered way. And it's, it's a helpful tool. I, in the years since I've discovered this, I'm like, why didn't anybody tell me about this sooner? It's part, I think, of Jesus' burden, which is his yoke is easy, his burden is light. It's a good thing. All right. How do you respond to a problem? Well, do you feel the emotion of it? That maybe is a problem that God wants you to be a part of. Maybe it's a problem that it's got your name on it. You can't avoid it. Same thing. Um, What do you do? You should bring it to God in prayer and in fasting. But then, this is important, Nehemiah chapter 1 shows us you need to act. You cannot go, I've done everything I need to do by simply praying and fasting. You need to act. Action always results. So listen for Nehemiah, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. After four months of prayer, he says, this is maybe his morning prayer, give me success today. Grant me mercy or him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah, after all this praying goes, I'm going to act and act he does. And we'll miss what he does in chapter 2 unless we understand the context. Nehemiah takes his life in his hands. And he goes to the king that morning, as he's been doing for the last four months of his prayer and fasting, presumably, he holds the king's cup of hand in his wine and he holds a packet of Kleenex in the other. And the king looks at the wine and looks at I'm joking, but Kleenex, you get it. But it says that, he says that he's, he's, he's emotional. He's letting his grief show. The king picks up on it straight away and he goes, what's wrong? Now we're in real danger. You don't come to the Persian king and burden him with your personal problems. If you're a cupbearer, you don't do this. King says even now, so what's wrong? Now his danger gets even worse. Because what is wrong? What's wrong? Ezra chapter 4, remember? Who's the king that ordered the, stopping the rebuilding of the wall? Artaxerxes. Who's the king now? Artaxerxes, same guy. So what's wrong? Artaxerxes, the king, asks, and Nehemiah goes, you are, your stupid law, your problem. You can see how, how dangerous it is. What is Nehemiah? He doesn't go for that option in case you missed it in the reading. What he does is very, very instructive. Verse 3, what's wrong? Well, why should not my face be sad 
when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Artaxerxes says, what's wrong? Nehemiah says, my family cemetery is overrun. The tombs of my fathers are my ancestors and the city, it's, it's a wreck. Why, why wouldn't I be sad? And King Artaxerxes is like, that's right. Why wouldn't you be sad? That's a serious thing. If you're a pagan king, you value your tombs. I mean, Cyrus's king is still in Persia, apparently, uh, in Iran today. You can go and see it. The, the tombs of your ancestors are very important. So, you know, it, but what he, what he doesn't say is Jerusalem, the city of God is in ruins. Because, oh yeah, I remember making the, the decree about that. Doesn't say, doesn't mention the word Jerusalem. He's not lying. He's just being wise. I think Jesus would say of Nehemiah in this moment, he's being as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove before the king. And the king is going, okay, I understand that. That's a problem. So he says, ask directly, what are you requesting? Now the danger is intense. Because what he's requesting is the cupbearer to the Persian king is requesting that the king of the Persian empire does a backflip on his policy. He's asking him, change your policy. That's what he's doing. You know, you know politicians have got a lot invested in being strong rulers and not backflipping. And now, Nehemiah, in, see, this, this is what all the prayer, four months of prayer and fasting, is all zoned down into this one interview, a few minutes taking place in the throne room to the king. And that's no wonder Nehemiah, I don't know if you, you notice there, he says, and I prayed before he answered. <laughs> yeah, you, when your life is maybe about to be taken from you, you pray. When you're in the mass exam, for me, you pray. You know, like help, you know, arrow prayer they're called, like instinctive, not like, all right, let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer followed by, you know, it's like, help. You know, that's a, a very valid prayer. Nehemiah models for us. God's always on tap, if you like, always wanting to relate to us, always wanting to, to respond to us. Nehemiah prays to him in this moment because he knows his life is hanging by a thread. And then he says, let me go back and rebuild my father's tombs. Let me go back. And all that prayer and fasting comes into that moment and the king says, yes. What do you need? And Nehemiah then goes, lots of money, lots of resources. I need some political letters. King says, yours. Extraordinary, isn't it? Nehemiah faced a problem that was overwhelming. He responded in such a way that's instructive for us as believers. He recognized he's not alone. He owns the problem, comes to the problem with the problem to God in prayer and fasting. Then he acts in faith. And God does his thing. Now, as we close, we could go like this whole chapter, two chapters, one and a half chapters, is all about how amazing Nehemiah was. And we should learn a whole lot of leadership lessons from Nehemiah, how he goes about confronting problems. And I think there's validity in that, but Nehemiah is not the hero. He says himself, verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah knows that as he confronts the problems of his day, which were massive, he's not alone. God's hand is on him. What about us? God's hand is on you. Do you know why? Because think about how Jesus responded to problems. I love to imagine Jesus in the glory with his Father. Perfect bliss. Together, 
No problems looking down at our world with its rebellion and its brokenness, its rejection of God and all that comes with it. And Jesus going, not my problem. They made their bed, let them lie in it. It's not Jesus. He goes, this problem's got my name on it. And he comes from the glories of heaven to be born in Bethlehem, to take on the flesh of the problem, to become part of the problem. And how does he live in this world? Is it dispassionately and without emotion? No, Jesus weeps, balls his eyes out at the tomb of Lazarus, doesn't he? He sees the reality of the problems in his world. And what does he do? Just, oh, yeah. No, he weeps and it comes deep from within him when he's looking over Jerusalem. And he weeps, we're told. And he says, oh, if only you'd responded to the time. Jesus is emotionally connected with his world. He, uh, and he owns the problem. And when, it, when he decides it's his problem, what does he do as he sets out? What does he do before he starts his ministry? What's the first thing he does? He fasts. 40 days in the wilderness. He spends time in prayer as the beginning and throughout his ministry. He fasts and he prays. And then in Gethsemane, in the garden of agony, when he's finally preparing, he says, I don't want to be a part of the solution to this problem. Not if it's this. Is there another way? Remember that? If it's your will, take this cup from me. Not the cup of Nehemiah, but the cup that's full of poison. I don't want to drink it. But when there's no other way, Jesus takes action and he goes to the cross willingly he carries all of the burdens of the shame he goes like this is the solution to your problem and he dies but his last breath before he dies what does he say it's finished problem's finished but it's not finished is it Because Jesus doesn't stay hanging on the cross. He goes into the tomb. On the third day, he rises again in glory and triumph. Now, what is he doing? What's Jesus doing? Oh, well, I've got a permanent holiday after what I've been through. I'm going to become a grey nomad and just tour around the universe, just doing nothing. You know what Jesus does? Listen to this. Romans 8, 34, 39. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. I spoke to you at the start and saying a Christian and a non-Christian must approach the problems of this world differently. If you're a non-Christian, you don't yet know Jesus, you're on your own. And I have great admiration for people who go through this life with all their problems, carrying it all on their shoulders with no other hope in any other thing beyond them, going through their life, carrying it all until finally they encounter the greatest problem that they cannot cope with, which is death. But for Christians, Jesus is interceding for us, for you. If you're a Christian, whatever problem it is that that is front and center in your world today, whatever problem that the conveyor belt has brought to you, you're not alone. Even if it's you've got the problem of a diagnosis of cancer, that you have two months to live, you have whatever it might be, you are not alone. Jesus is interceding for you. Interceding for you as you face the problems of your world. He's spotting for you. He's going to God saying, God, bless James. Bless Lucy. Praying for them. 
I don't know about you, but having Jesus Christ pray for you, your father's going to go, oh, I'm not listening to you, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> when Jesus prays, God the Father answers every time. You're not alone. This, Romans goes to say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, what problem? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, significant problems? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He goes on to say that not even death could separate us from the love of Jesus. So I want you and I want us as we close and we think about maybe problems that we face in our own lives. We think of problems that we face as a church community that are real, that weigh heavy on us. I want us to be encouraged that we have the best possible news. Jesus Christ is interceding for us. It's finished. He's finished all those problems. He carries them. He's now interceding for us. And one day very soon, we will enter a world where there is no more problems. But until then, let's learn from Nehemiah. Let's learn from Jesus. And I'm going to ask that as we close, the musicians are going to come up. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask you to pray, actually. I'm going to ask two or three questions. And as I do that, I want you, particularly if you are someone who right now, there's a big problem in your world, then you know it. I want you, together with your brothers and sisters around, to lay that at the foot of Jesus Christ. All right, can we do that? So I'm going to pray, just close your eyes. We come before the presence of this almighty God who made the universe, who never has a problem that concerns him. We come before this God who, who loved us and our problems so much that he sent Jesus. So question number one, what is the problem that you face today personally? Maybe a broken relationship or a financial problem, problem of health, many other problems. Maybe you feel alone. I want you right now to bring that to the foot of Jesus. Give it to him right now. Second question is, what, what problems as a church community of brothers and sisters do you face here in Brisbane? finding a new pastor, it could be disconnection, it could be financial challenges, it could be broken relationships or strained relationships or gossip, all the things that can happen in a church community. Bring them to God right now. Lay them at the feet of Jesus. And finally, let me ask you, is there a problem in the world that might have your name on it? Is there some brokenness, some need amongst God's people or amongst the world as a whole that you feel that passion for and you feel the stirring? And maybe you wonder, is that something that, God, you want me to be part of? Fixing. If that's you, I want you to lay it before the feet of Jesus. And I want you to say, 
Jesus, if you want me to be part of that solution, show me and guide me and empower me to do that. Father, we we come before you as your people and we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for the, the word recorded for our building up and our growth. We pray, Lord, that as we gather that that we who are so weak and the problems of our lives overwhelm us, we thank you that we come to a God who is sovereign over every problem and who loves us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're interceding for us. And as we lay our problems and we come to you with all our heavy burdens and we we cast them on you, we know that, that your shoulders are big enough, that you've conquered. And Lord, we pray finally that we, as your people, we, uh, we pray those who are not Christians might know what it is to go through life under your sovereign care. But Lord, for those of us who are Christians, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be different in the way we deal with our anxieties and our problems and our concerns. Help us, Lord, to not just in our language and our words acknowledge your sovereignty, but in the way we lay all of the problems that we face. In this world, we will have trouble. We know that. But you've overcome the world. So help us to respond in that way that honors you and shines the light to others who need to know who you are. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.